The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to talk about the most important event in all of redemptive history. In fact, in all of history, it's called by the by the writer of the book of Hebrews, this is the high point of the ages. It's the consummation of all the ages. This is the most important event that makes sense of the ages. Why has God done what he's done throughout history? And this event is the crucifixion of Christ. Now, we're in, we're in Luke 23, and what I want you to see here are there are four trials that Jesus is stood before four different courts. And uh, the first one is the Sanhedrin, which is his own people, the leaders of his own people. And the second one is before Pilate, who was the uh, Roman legate who was responsible for ruling over Jerusalem for Rome. And the third was Herod, who was also a Roman ruler, but in a different uh, kind of status. And then finally, all the people of Israel, uh, of Jerusalem, that came before the, the, not, it wasn't just the leaders, it was all the people, and they're the ones who demanded that he be crucified. So listen to this account. Four trials, the cross, and the tomb. That's what this chapter has in it. It's, and as I said, this is the high point of all the ages. Listen to this in chapter 22, verse 66. When it was day, that is, it was daylight, and the reason for this is the Sanhedrin could not have a court where it was a capital punishment court where there's death involved before daylight. It had to be during the day. They couldn't do it at night. That's a good idea, isn't it? That was God's idea. (laughs) The council of elders of the people, that's the Sanhedrin, assembled both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber. This was at the, the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. And so they've brought him here to try him before the court, the main court of Israel. But Israel, of course, was under the rule of Rome, so this doesn't end things. But listen to what happens. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. This is what they say to Jesus. He's standing before the court. If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, then tell us. And this is what Jesus says. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. You wonder, why did he have that attitude? Because that's exactly what has been going on during his three and a half years of public ministry. Verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is, a, this is an expression that's referring back to Psalm 110. And it's referring to the Messiah taking a place of authority, of judgment, at the right hand of the Father. In other words, Jesus is telling them, uh, now on, from now on, the Son of Man, when he's seated at the right hand of God, you're going to be under his judgment. They're about to execute, through these trials and then the act of crucifixion, they're about to execute the king and the judge of all men. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? Because only the Son of God could sit at the right hand of the Father. That's Psalm 2. And he said to them, yes, I am. Yes, I am the Son of God. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? We don't have have to have anybody come and testify about what he said. 
for we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And this was considered to be an act of blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. The only problem is he actually is God. He's the eternal son of God. So that's before the Sanhedrin. They heard all the legal and civic matters in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. And so um, they believe that Jesus is actually stirring up the people for rebellion. And this is something that the Romans did not want to happen. And so they could make a claim before Rome that this man is stirring up the rabble-rousers in Israel and they're about to rebel against Rome. That's what they want to prove against him. But, of course, that's not what happened. Now, he acknowledges that he is the Son of God, but he's not stirring up the people. That would invalidate his ministry if he were doing that. In verse 69, it refers to Psalm 110, and in Psalm 110, you have the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of Christ. The session of Christ is the word used to describe Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father and ruling over his people and over the whole earth. And then verses 70 and 71, the one sitting at the right hand of God is the Son. That's who he is. He is the Son of God. And this is the proof that he's going to stir up people against Caesar because he's a king. So if he claims to be a king, that means the people should rebel against the Caesar of Rome. That's what they're trying to prove to the Romans so that they will let them crucify him. Now notice before Pilate, it says in verse 1 of chapter 23, then the whole body of them, that is the entire Sanhedrin and all who were there, they, they got up and they brought him before Pilate. Now, as I said, Pilate was the Roman prefect. He had the responsibility to rule over Jerusalem and over Israel for Rome because Rome owned this nation as far as they were concerned. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man, this is the Jews saying this, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Did Jesus forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar? No, he said, render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's. His image was on their coins. So he says, if pay, give him the things that, that have his image on it, which is the Roman money, and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. And so they're trying to prove that Jesus deserves to be put to death. And so Pilate asked him, saying, this is what he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Or if you have an NIV, it says, you've said so. That's all he said, you've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Isn't that amazing? That both of these Romans declare him to be not guilty of doing anything that deserved death. What should they have done? They should have released him. But they were cowards because the people were in an uprising. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee. Get this. Starting from Galilee up north, even as far as, as this place, coming all the way to Jerusalem. When Pilate heard it, that he was from Galilee, he says, he asked whether he was, this man was from Galilean. Why? Because Herod had come to Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Herod was the ruler over Galilee. 
He was a Roman ruler over Galilee. And so when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in, at Jerusalem at this time. He came to celebrate the Passover as well. Now, celebrating the Passover for the nation of Israel was like our 4th of July. It was, a dec- it was a celebration that God had set them free from Egyptian rule. Remember that? And they became a nation. And so this is why these Roman rulers over Israel would come to this festival, because it was a great celebration of the nation of Israel. And so Pilate is glad to hand him over to Herod, get him off his hands. He's just a problem because the people want him killed, but these, these Roman rulers knew that he didn't deserve death. He had done nothing to deserve death, and yet this is what they're demanding. And so Pilate correctly concludes that there's no basis of charge against him, but he wouldn't release him. He sends him to Herod. Now, we're going to be told something here about Herod and, and Pilate. They, they were not good friends at all. They were enemies, but this brought them together, this event. Notice verse 8. Now he's before Herod. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Why was he glad? This is why he was glad. Because he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed, some supernatural manifestation. In other words, he said, entertain me. Show me a trick. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. Why is that? Because Herod wanted to be entertained by him. And so Jesus doesn't even answer him because he has no authority over him, Jesus knows. Who was it? In whose authority was Jesus taken to the cross? The authority of the God of the universe. It was God's will that his son go to the cross. They thought it was their will, and they did want it to happen, but it was the Father who arranged this from eternity past, that his son would die on a cross in your stead as a sacrifice for you. That's why he died. So now, here's Herod. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw him and so forth. He questioned him at length, but he said nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him. So the chief priests and the, and the Sanhedrin followed around, and they were at every one of these trials. And they kept speaking evil of him. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, an elegant robe. Why? To mock him, because he claimed to be the king of Israel. And so he, gives him, he dresses him in this robe. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. So now they had a common problem, and they became friends. So Pilate had handed him over to Herod, and now Herod is going to hand him over. And listen to what it says in verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Now notice who he summoned. You get that? The chief priests, the rulers, and the people. So now Jesus is going to stand before a court of of all the people that come together for this. This is like a public demonstration. And they want to be able to help decide if he should die. And he, and he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, he's talking to the people, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. 
This is back to Pilate, the Roman uh, representative that rules over Jerusalem. And he says, I don't find anything against him that would cause him to be put to death. No, nor does Herod. For Herod sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's the judgment of Pilate and Herod. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That's, that's, you get the irony of this? He hasn't done anything wrong, but, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll punish him and give him back to you. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast a prisoner. He says, I'll release him as the, as the prisoner that's released during this feast. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. Release for us Barabbas. And he tells us who Barabbas was. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Give us this murderer and insurrectionist, and you take Jesus. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! The people are all yelling this. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That is, I'm going to release him to your care. I'm going to give, I'm going to give up a, a prisoner to you to show that we are benevolent towards you. We're going to get up, give up one of these Jewish prisoners back to you. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. Now get this next sentence. And Pilate pronounced sentence that, that their demand be granted. He gave in to the pressure. And it says in verse 25, and he released the man they were asking for had been in the... Who, for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Isn't that amazing? He delivered Jesus to their will. What they didn't know was what he was really doing. He was releasing Jesus to the will of the Father. See, Pilate again should have released him, but he was afraid. He was afraid of the people. And the Jews kept saying, he's worthy of death. Yet both Herod and Pilate said, he's done nothing worth, worthy of, of death. And so because of this custom at the festival, they would set free a Jewish prisoner who had been arrested and put in jail. He offered to do that. He would give Jesus up and leave Barabbas in prison. Now, Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist. They preferred that he set free Barabbas rather than set free Jesus. Do you get it? What they, of course, didn't understand, Pilate certainly didn't, didn't realize this, that ultimately it is God's will that has prevailed. Now, some people, you read the Bible, and the Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was, who was sacrificed before the foundation of the world. That is, it was planned before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come and die in the place of his people, to be a sacrifice for his people. Under the sacrificial system, uh, men would bring to the priest an animal to be sacrificed, a lamb who, who had to be perfect, which had to be perfect, to be offered up for him. 
to be a substitute for him because he had sinned. In this case, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is offered as the ultimate sacrifice. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament, and there were thousands upon thousands, millions of gallons of blood were shed in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But they all pointed to one Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 26, now we see him going to the cross. The soldiers led him away. They seized Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in northern Africa. He had come in for the festival. It says he was on his way in from the country because he'd been on this journey. And he comes in and they grab him. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. I know you all know this because you've seen all the movies. This is what the text says. And he says a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come. When you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. They're going to say they had always, they, they understood that women who had children were greatly blessed by God. But he said, there's day coming when you're going to say, no, the ones without children are the blessed because they don't have to go through what we're going through. Now, what he's talking about in the immediate future, 40 years from this time, Israel, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Roman army. Titus is going to bring an assault against them, and every stone will be thrown down. And the people will have to flee. In fact, this is what he says. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. This is right out of Hosea 10. It's talking about when the judgment of God comes on his people, they're going to feel like this. I just want to die. Let me die. For if people do these things when the tree is green... That is, while Jesus is here and his gospel is being proclaimed, what will happen when it's dry? What will happen when the judgment of God comes on this people? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, the place called the Skull, This is an amazing uh, statement. It's some, in some of your Bibles, you'll have other words and other parallel passages. For example, Golgotha is a, the Aramaic term for skull, and you find that in Matthew and Mark. And Calvaria, from which we get our English word Calvary, is a Latin term for skull. I guess you could say Calvary Community Church is the skull church. It's the place where Jesus died. Now, we don't know why they called it the skull. It was either the fact that the, the Romans were continually executing people here, or it's the fact that it was shaped like a skull. The fact is, we don't know where this is. It has never been established, the location of Golgotha. There are guesses, especially people who want to sell you tickets to go and see it. Don't you like those ads from Israel? Uh, come and visit, uh, go, walk where he walked. This is the Israeli government 
puts out these ads to try to get Christians to come and visit the Holy Land. Now, it was called Holy Land originally because God was manifest there. He dwelt there. The Son of God was there. And so if you went there, they would show you where all the sites are. But many of those sites, we have no idea if they're actually the real physical site of the things that happen. But it sure is easier to sell tickets. So they came to the place of the skull. They were crucified him there. Crucified him there. Amazing. Crucifixion was the most horrible way of executing a person there was in the ancient world. It actually was reserved only for insurrectionists, that is, those who rose up against the government, or slaves who did horrible crimes. It was a horrible way to die. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on right and one on the left. (laughs) Isn't that something? They put him right between two convicted criminals who had committed murder and they deserved to die. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. I think he's speaking specifically of those who's putting him on the cross. These Roman soldiers who are nailing him to the, to the cross. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They had no idea that they were nailing the Son of God to the cross. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The, the apostles often quoted this in their sermons of the gospel. That Jesus forgave his enemies. Isn't that amazing? The people stood watching. This is a mark of Christians. They forgive people. And we follow Christ because of the influence of Christ in our lives. We forgive people who sin against us. The other day, I was in a conversation. This person was really upset with some other people that something they had done or had failed to do. Just, and what I, it was like looking in a mirror for me. And I realized how easy it is to do that. When something bad happens to you, you want people to know just how much you've suffered, don't you? And Jesus is hanging on the cross, nailed to the cross, having been beaten and mocked and spit upon. And he cries out, Father... Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. This is right out of the Psalms. David said this is what happened to him when his enemies tortured him. They tried to give him wine vinegar and gall. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, a written notice. This was common. So when he was crucified, they would put a notice above his head on the cross and say, this is why he's being crucified. And, what was, and that's what happened. They put one over his head. Jesus This man is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Now, this was obviously a slam at the people of Israel by the Romans. Oh, here's your king. And he was their king, and they had rejected him. He came came to his own, and his own did not receive him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? 
Save yourself if you're the Messiah and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. You're being crucified as well. We are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, he turns to Jesus. We don't know which one of these thieves it was, but one of them turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's fascinating that in the Old Testament, this word paradise, the equivalent of paradise, was used of the Garden of Eden as well as the future garden in the new Jerusalem. In other words, the new creation. And so he's telling him, your salvation doesn't have to wait. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So between noon and and three, for three hours, it became totally dark. It doesn't tell us why. It just tells us that it's a cosmic event because this is a cosmic event that's going on here. For the sun stopped shining, and at the same time, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I still remember hearing uh, Steve Fernandes preach on this particular passage right here. And he said, God pulled down the shade as he poured out his wrath on his own son who stood in our place and received the penalty for our sins. Supernaturally, it goes dark for three hours. And during that time, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain between where only the priest could go behind and ultimately into the presence of God. What's happened? Jesus' death has removed the curtain. We have access to the presence of God. The word presence in the Bible is the word face. When you're in the presence of somebody, you can see their face. And so, this is what, remember uh, Jonah who ran from the presence of God? That's what it says, it ran from the face of God. But you can't get away from the face of God. You can't get away from the presence of God. But there are moments in God's glorious grace that he manifests his presence to you. And you find yourself before the living God. Jesus called out. He's on the cross now. All this has happened. He calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the, the other gospels for example, uh, say that he dismissed his spirit. It was time to die, and he dismisses his spirit. And here it tells us that he committed his spirit to the Father. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, understand who this is. This is the eternal Son of God who took on humanity, and he had a human spirit, a human body, a human soul. And Jesus on the cross experienced real death. Real physical death. And so he dismisses his human spirit. Now in 1 Peter 3 it tells us during this period of time between his death and his resurrection, 
his spirit, his human spirit, and his human spirit, he went and made proclamation to those who were being held captive for the day of judgment, the angels he was talking about. In verse 47, the centurion, the Roman centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man, a Roman soldier who watched every bit of this says, surely he was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Isn't it amazing how fickle this crowd is? Isn't it amazing how fickle we are? (laughs) Or we can be. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Wow. What an event. What a dramatic event that God deals with sin in a moment's time in the person of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 50 through 56, you have the tomb. It says, now there was a a man named Joseph, a member of the council. That is, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a leader in Israel. But he was a good and upright man, man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was not for them doing what they did to Jesus. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and we don't know where that's located. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body because he's dead and his body's hanging on the cross. Then he took it down. He wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in a rock, which means it was some, a rich person who owned this tomb, which was Joseph. One in which no one had been laid. That's why when they go to the tomb, there's no one there because no one had ever been buried in this tomb except Jesus. And then he was raised from the dead. The women who had come with Jesus from, the, from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb. They saw where it was located and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. They rested on the Sabbath. Let me show you something. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us fear, this is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they, that is Israel in the Old Testament, but the word they heard did not profit them them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Do you know you can hear the gospel a million times and yet it will do you no good until you believe it? And repentance always comes with faith. At the beginning of faith, we repent, which means we turn from our unbelief. We turn from setting our heart on something else and we turn to Christ and we believe upon him. And he said their problem was that they saw it, but it wasn't, they saw, they heard this offer of rest But it was not united by faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, that is, he's talking about New Testament Christians now, 
For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Jesus created the universe in six days and he rested on the seventh. And then in the, under the law, it was required of the, of the citizens of Israel to rest on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. That's Saturday. It's not Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is the last day of the week, and they were to rest on Saturday. He says, for he had, has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. What he means by that, they're not going to believe. They're not going to enter into rest when I command them to do it. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, to enter his rest, how do we enter his rest? Well, listen to what he says. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The rest he has called us to is rest in Christ, not rest on some one day of the week, but to rest completely and for eternity in Christ. He goes on, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. When you come to faith in Christ, you're resting. You're resting from your efforts to be what you want to be or to, to make yourself right with God through your own works. We rest in Christ. We rest in the work of Christ for us. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, I love this. What comes after this commandment to enter into rest in Jesus Christ, he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions, that is your, your motivation and your decisions of what you're going to do of the heart. It reveals the truth to you. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So if someone asks you as a Christian, so why aren't you worried about the future? Why aren't you in full of anxiety because the world seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket? Why is it that you're not all stirred up about all the evil in the world to the place you can't even live? Why don't you run to the hills? Well, it's because I've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a dark hour, but the light's coming. You know the right eschatology? You don't have to call it premillennialism, postmillennialism, millennialism, or post-toasties or anything else. The right eschatology is this. We, this is night and day is coming. Jesus is returning. And all that he has promised us is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, our confession that we're resting in Christ alone. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why is that? 
because you've never experienced the kind of weaknesses Jesus did. For one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You see, it's easier to give in to sin than it is to resist sin. And he says, Jesus never gave in. He was tempted to the point far beyond what we've been tempted because he never gave in to sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Draw near with confidence. In other words, I can have absolute confidence I'm going to be received by Christ. I can draw near him so that we may receive mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is when you're treated based on your need, not what you deserve. That we may receive mercy and find grace. That's God giving himself to you freely to help in time of need. It's amazing, isn't it, how many periods of neediness and suffering that you go through in the Christian life? And yet we have a Savior who's passed through the heavens. And he's at the right hand of God. And he's getting ready to come back. And he's going to bring us into this atmosphere of total freedom and release from everything that has kept us down and has attacked us from all sides. And so here are these ladies they, they spy out where he's buried and they go back and they get all that's necessary for them to go back and treat his body for burial. But they rest on the Sabbath. I want to read one more verse to you. It's, it's the one I mentioned before in, in Hebrews chapter 9. Since we're in Hebrews, it's easy to turn there. Just a few chapters later. Chapter 9. Listen to this. I'm going to begin reading from verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed. He's talking about those things on earth in the temple. It was, it was necessary to cleanse those things, but the heavenly things themselves have to have a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament. The only way he can pave a way for us is by a sacrifice of himself. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy. He's talking about after he died and raised to the, to the Father. Not a copy, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. You ever think about that? That Christ appeared in heaven for you? What kind of a representative is this? We're used to senators and congressmen. They're supposed to be representing us. We have no idea if they are. He says, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood was not their own. The priest kept coming back every single year offering sacrifice. But it wasn't their blood they were offering. He says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages. The word consummation here means the completion of a combination. Uh, some of us are old enough to remember when in high school they gave us combination locks to put on our lockers. And you remember when you turned it back and forth, you finally came to that last click? That's what this word means. The end of a combination is the way it's defined in a Greek lexicon. It's the end of this. He says it's, 
He, he was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love that expression, don't you? If somebody was to ask you, what happened to your sins? I know you sinned. And you say, well, Jesus was manifested to put them away. He put them away. What happened to your sins? Jesus put them away for all those who believe on him. Isn't that amazing? What a glorious truth that he's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he says, he goes on in verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. This is the biblical teaching that we're going to die and then there's a judgment ahead. For the believer, judgment had took place in 30 AD, 33 AD. Your sins were judged on, on Golgotha, on Calvaria, the place of the skull. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You know, you read this and you say, and I guess I should eagerly await him. No, this is talking about who you are. You Believers are people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. That's who we are. You know why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit keeps producing in your heart this desire to see Christ. Can't wait till he returns. He's coming back. And so we eagerly await him. And so this is why we celebrate together about the second coming of Christ. We used to sing an old song, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all pass, home at last, ever to rejoice. It's nighttime now, but the light's coming. Do any of you know that song, Oh, I want to see him? You're afraid to say yes, huh? Jeannie knows it. That's the heart of every believer. We want to see Christ because we know he is our Savior. And he has put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. You know where this first occurred? Anybody? Where this message of the death of Christ first occurred? Well, it's first given to us in what's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first preaching of the gospel. It's found in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's actually in a section where he's cursing the, the serpent for, in, for tempting Adam and Eve. And this is what he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is Jesus Christ. We find out as we go through the Bible. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What Jesus accomplished against Satan far outstrips what Satan thought he accomplished on the cross. It was the will of, the, of Satan and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin to get Jesus on the cross. Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross in order to save his people. He had to be handed over to the will of the people in order for him to die for our sins. And it's been accomplished. 
I read this, I read this chapter and I was thinking about in the Christian life, there are some things you know you should be doing, but it seems so difficult. It seems so hard. It's so easy to bail out rather than to persevere. And here we have this picture of the persevering Savior, that he persevered through all this in order to save us from our sins. Now next week, when we get to chapter 24, we'll see the resurrection of Christ. He's a risen Savior. But at this point in in Luke's account, he's in a tomb. And the Sabbath is going and the ladies are resting, but they're going to go on the next morning in order to dress his body and they're going to find an empty tomb. Let's pray. Our Father, I never get over the fact that you would send your son to die for me. It boggles my mind. What a bad investment, I think, that you would be willing to pay this price for me. And, but you've done it for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, thank you so much for a Savior like this a Savior who was willing to be abused and mocked and spit upon in order to accomplish this work of being offered up in our stead and in our place. And now we can go free. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, Father, that we face the future knowing that Jesus is returning. And yes, we do want to see him. We do look forward to the day when the light comes and this darkness is dispelled. I'm so glad you didn't you haven't given us the responsibility to dispel all the darkness. That's something that Christ is going to do. But you have told us that you want us to be light in this world. That you want us to live in fellowship with you in the power of the spirit. Loving Christ, loving you, obeying your commands. Loving your glory. So, Father, we pray that this week we would live in anticipation of Christ's coming and that we would talk about it with one another. Help us to rejoice in this blessed hope, as Titus puts it, as Paul puts it in Titus, that this is a blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We long to see the day. We long to see the day, Father. So let us live in anticipation of his return this week, we pray. Go with us as we leave this place. Empower us to live for you. Let us see the, the absolute necessity, the importance of bearing witness to Christ in these dark days. And help us, Father, to be fruitful in our life as we walk in the power of the Spirit. Because Jesus died to set us free. And we give you thanks for the freedom. Bless us today, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.